the old pilot's plain tales. Talk to me. In aviation, voice communication is a vital ingredient and often the only medium available to pass information. No conversation is more vital than that between the pilots and those who smooth their progress through the air, air traffic controllers. Controllers rightly pride themselves on their ability to safely move metal through the skies, but we're all human, and when that essential link breaks down, not just between air and ground, but on the flight deck itself, it can have devastating consequences. It was always going to be a foul night at New York's JFK airport. It was late in the evening of January the 25th, 1990, and the weather was even worse than forecast. The cloud base was around 300 feet, the visibility occasionally down to one quarter of a mile in rain and fog, and although the surface wind was around 20 knots down runway 22 left, it was as much as 60 knots at 1,000 feet and around 50 knots at 500 feet, leading to warnings of wind shear and turbulence on the approach. Avianca Flight 52 had departed Bogota, Colombia, earlier in the day, and on making an en route stop at Jose Maria Cordova Airport, the dispatcher and the captain discussed how much fuel to take. They carried enough for their journey, plus their final reserve, fuel for the alternate airport of Boston, and some holding fuel and taxi fuel. On top of this, the dispatcher ordered an extra £4,000, that's about 1.8 metric tonnes. Before departure, the captain suggested that they use a different runway so they could get an extra £2,000, 900 kilograms, onto the aircraft, taking it up to their maximum takeoff weight. It was later established that the JFK weather given to the crew at Cordova was some nine or ten hours out of date, and the forecast for Boston was no longer within limits for an alternate airfield. Just after three in the afternoon, the Boeing 707 got airborne, bound for JFK. On the sixth floor of a building in Washington, D.C., at 800 Independence Avenue, lived the Central Flow Control Facility, which managed the airspace of the National Airspace System and ensured that the number of arriving aircraft did not exceed the capacity of the airports and en route sectors. The CFCF was, to put it politely, giving JFK a very optimistic landing rate of 33 aircraft per hour whereas the arrival rate should have been set at a much more realistic 23 aircraft per hour. When the weather worsened, the reaction was too slow to prevent a significant backup. An initial ground stop for inbound traffic wasn't sufficient to abate the airborne holding, which had already begun to build up. Aircraft continued to pour into the sectors surrounding New York, and holding times were mounting. Unaware of what was ahead, Flight 52 was at flight level 370 and working its way through Miami's upper airspace. On the flight deck that day was an experienced 51-year-old captain who had been with Avianca 27 years and had some 16,000 hours flight time 
of which over 1,500 was on the Venerable 707. His first officer was 28 and had 1,800 hours, but only 64 hours on type, having recently converted. Working at the Flying Engineer Station was a man nearly as experienced as his captain with 10,000 hours and over 1,000 hours just on the same airframe as they were flying that night. Despite his long career, what became obvious during the flight was the captain's poor grasp of English. Not once during the flight did he use the radio, even when vital information needed to be passed, leaving all the air traffic communication to his younger and less experienced co-pilot. Avianca had a contract with Pan American World Airways to provide flight following within the United States, specifically for flights returning to Colombia, but despite having out-of-date weather forecasts, no effort was made to contact them to discuss the weather changes, the ATC situation at JFK, and the available alternates. The first inkling that things might not go as smoothly for them as they hoped came to the crew of Flight 52 when they were given holding instructions over Norfolk, some distance from JFK, for nearly 20 minutes. The crew complied without comment, perhaps believing that when the hold ended, they would be on their way again without further delay. However, not much further into their journey, the Washington sector informed them that they would again be holding over position Botom. This delay lasted an additional 26 minutes, and perhaps feeling concerned, they asked Washington what the situation was like at their diversion, Boston. They were informed that Boston was open and accepting traffic, and to also expect as much as 30 minutes of additional holding in the New York area. When being placed into these holds, the controllers were passing expect further clearance times. From the conversation on the flight deck, it may be that the crew were confused as to what these times meant. It is possible that the captain understood an EFC time to be the time when he could expect to leave the hold and begin an approach to land, whereas the NTSB informs us that, in reality, they are merely estimates issued by the controller based on a dynamic traffic and weather situation and are given to provide a time to commence the approach should the flight lose radio contact. It appears that, without any other information, the Avianca crew were planning their fuel reserves and ability to reach their diversion based on these times past. After leaving the boat on hold, they were moved tantalisingly close to their destination before again being held at position Cameron. Their first EFC time expired about eight minutes before they joined the Cameron hold, and they were given another for 2039, about nine minutes into the future. When their controller issued yet another EFC, this time for 2105, the captain finally realised that they were in a serious situation, and they needed to commence their approach very soon. The first officer asked for an estimate, and the reply, at first, sounded confident, when the controller said that, he might be able to get to you in right now. Stand by one. 
However, their hopes were dashed when they were advised, we just got off the line, it's uh, indefinite hold at this time. Flight 52 replied with, ah, well, I think we need priority. The controller asked how long they could hold for and what their alternate was. A little while later, they replied that they could hold for about five minutes. That's all we can do. On being asked again for their alternate, they replied, Ah, uh, we said Boston, but uh, it is uh, full of traffic, I think. The controller asked them to say again the alternate airfield. Uh, it was Boston, the first officer replied, but we we can't do it now. We we don't. We run out of fuel now. It was clear that, expecting an approach before this point, the captain had allowed his fuel state to reduce below the point at which he could safely divert. Not only that, as was subsequently revealed, the aircraft was already critical for its destination. It is apparent from the radio recordings that while holding at Cameron, they first expressed a need for priority, that they could only hold for five minutes and that they couldn't reach Boston. Whether the crew believed that these transmissions to air traffic control conveyed the urgency for emergency handling is unknown, but during the subsequent vectors towards the airfield, their question should have been answered when they were given a turn away from JFK in a long racetrack that delayed them several further minutes. It should have been obvious that their controllers were treating them as routine traffic and not with any priority. At this point, if not earlier, they should have declared an emergency. It was now that the cockpit voice recorder became available, and the transcript shows us that the first officer clearly mistakenly believed that they are giving us priority. The flight progressed to the instrument approach for runway 22 and ILS. The aircraft had enough fuel to make the approach, but the flight engineer was clearly concerned about the low fuel levels in the main tanks as he reminded the captain that, should they go around, they shouldn't use a pronounced pitch or acceleration, as the engine fuel pump intakes might be uncovered, leading to fuel starvation. The approach was going to need careful thought for another reason. With some 60 knots of wind at 1,000 feet, and only 20 knots on the ground, there was going to be some wind shear, but this wasn't the main problem. It is thought that the captain had been hand-flying his aircraft for some time, perhaps the whole flight, as the autopilot had an intermittent fault and he was almost certainly denied the use of his flight directors during the approach, conducting it on raw data. He would have been tired and under a great deal of stress considering his fuel state. An everyday rate of descent to maintain a proper path to the runway would not work out on this approach. With a high headwind, his ground speed was much lower than usual, and he would have to fly with a correspondingly lower rate of descent. This the captain failed to do, and on intercepting the glide slope, his aircraft immediately descended below the correct path until the needle was almost at full deflection. 
his correction was rapid, but on regaining the glide slope, he almost immediately flew low again, until, inside two miles, he again had full fly-up indications. With his ground proximity warning system shouting, Whoop, whoop, pull up! multiple times, accompanied with oral glide slope warnings, his distance and low altitude prevented him from seeing the runway, and, despite his dire situation, he went around. He had been less than two miles from safety. What happened next was almost irrelevant. Their fate had been sealed. On being handed back to the approach controller, the captain told his first officer to advise him we don't have fuel. The first officer acknowledged his instruction to climb to 3,000 feet and added, Sir, we just running out of fuel. Again, the captain told his co-pilot to advise him we are in emergency. The reply was, Yes, sir, I already advised him. Whilst being vectored for a second approach, the flight engineer called flame-out on engine number four. This was followed by a flame-out on number three. The first officer radioed that they had just lost two engines and we need priority. Fifteen miles from the outer marker, the controller asked if they had fuel to get to the airport, but there was no reply. On the flight recorder, the captain quietly remarked, Amoria, to die. The aircraft came down on a hill in Cove Neck, on the north shore of Long Island. Of the 158 persons on board, 73 were fatally injured, including all three on the flight deck and five of the six cabin crew. The NTSB determined that the cause of the accident was the failure of the flight crew to adequately manage their fuel and their failure to communicate an emergency situation. They also criticised the crew's failure to use the flight following that was available to them to gain advance notice of the problems ahead. Wind shear, crew fatigue and stress also contributed to the accident as did inadequate traffic flow management by the FAA and the lack of standard understandable terminology for pilots and controllers for minimum and emergency fuel states. However, not all the NTSB board were in full agreement with the findings. One member filed a dissenting statement in which he criticised Washington controllers for failing to inform the crew of additional holding ahead. He also criticised the JFK controllers for failing to forward remarks by the flight crew concerning their fuel situation. He added, Whilst I can accept the argument that such an unsatisfactory service was not causal to this accident, this pattern of substandard service reflects poorly on the air traffic control systems and raises serious safety concerns. Another member dissented and stated, We do have standardised, understandable terminology. Mayday internationally and emergency in English that would have adequately communicated the existence of a dangerous situation and that the pilots failed to use this terminology with the controllers. 
The Colombian Department of Civil Aeronautics also questioned why the New York Tracon controller accepted an aircraft he had no room for. Had Flight 52 been rejected, it would have had plenty of fuel to make alternative arrangements. In addition, the controllers gave no special meaning to the statement made by the crew that we are running out of fuel, sir. There seemed to have been many opportunities to have saved the lives of the passengers on Avianca Flight 52. Had the first officer been more forceful and fully explained the situation that they were getting into instead of imagining that a request for a priority was the same as calling Mayday or declaring an emergency? Had the controllers sought an explanation for the crew's repeated expressions of concern about their fuel state? Finally, despite his age and experience, had the captain's skills been honed enough to land from a difficult but quite flyable raw data ILS, everyone would have walked away safe and well.